This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Destiny, everybody, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is Malay for it's hot in here, uh, which refers to the searing temperatures that we will be encountering uh, in Singapore. Malay, by the way, I've learned is the official language according to the original Singapore constitution. And since we don't have Malaysia on the calendar anymore, I figured it was uh, um, fitting to get uh, some... Malay language in there. I'm Drew Scanlon. Joining me is Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Well, now I'm missing Malaysia. That was a good circuit. I, ca- I could go for that I again. I know. I know. Uh, we got uh, F1's only night race coming up, though. Uh, Daniel Dwyer, by the way, um, out on house moving duties, uh, but with us in spirit. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, welcome. Uh, if you are new to the uh, Formula One sport itself, we recommend listening to our uh, preseason primer episode, which assumes... No prior F1 knowledge uh, and gives the lowdown on how the sport works, who everybody is. Uh, so if you want to listen to that, this year's primer is episode 59. Uh, also, the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shift F1. Uh, every month we release at, we, at least one uh, bonus podcast and bonus video exclusively for our patrons covering racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, primers for other racing series, a uh, whole lot of uh, weird stuff. So if you want to support the show and get access to all those things, head over to patreon.com slash shift F1 or click on the link in the show notes. We just finally finished up our three-part series on the F1 Netflix documentary Drive to Survive, um, which was really fun. I, you know, I enjoyed uh, watching that one again. I think almost more interesting to discuss now, uh, given that we kind of know how the story ends that it's setting up at the end of its run. So uh, definitely a good time to revisit it. Totally. Uh, Today, however, we will be discussing uh, the modern news in 2019 uh, and uh, the Singapore Grand Prix. But let's let's get to that news first, Rob. Uh, First, a real quick update on the ongoing. Well, no longer ongoing. Haas Rich Energy Saga. Uh, Haas released a picture uh, of their car for this weekend, what the livery will look like. There is no Rich Energy branding on it whatsoever, but the colors are the same. And yet there is something a little undeniably more Hearst-like about the entire thing. i got to be honest. <laughs> the, the photo they released, is it that, was the Haas uh, in the gold before instead of the white lettering? Mm, um, it I think it was... Feels less colorful than it was. It was already a pretty dark-looking car. But maybe it's just this yeah. like moody, like gloss black backdrop they've got to this, uh, to this, to this graphic. Yeah, exactly. Because this definitely looks like... Uh, you know, you're 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 gonna, you're gonna be loading you're gonna be loading someone for their last ride into the back of that Haas. Jeez. Oh, um, let's see. Yeah, not really much to to touch on after that. Uh, that that partnership is done. Um, Racing Point. Speaking of upgrades to cars, uh, what's going on with them? So. This is apparently they're they're rolling out a major upgrade package, uh, what they're calling a major aero upgrade, which seems to imply that they might be touching more than one component. Uh, so they're in an interesting position. So it's clear this is their last major upgrade. And from here, it's just going to be a matter of implementation and tuning uh, the upgrades they've they've already got. But this is very much something that they're hoping is going to help them get an edge in a late season constructors championship fight, which is actually pretty tight. Like there is a really good fight for fourth in the constructors and a really good fight for sixth. Um, if things break certain ways, I guess you'd say that, you know, fourth is anybody's ball game, but I, I suspect it's not. Uh, so my, my feeling is that it's going to be kind of coming down between, um, 
you know, who's going who's gonna to end up in fourth and who's going to fall to sixth. And Racing Point right now is they just clawed their way ahead of Alfa Romeo, but they are still toward the back of that midfield pack. Um, Sergio Perez made some comments about he thinks they can win that midfield pack and they think they can be they they like he's saying i think we can finish fourth he says i think uh a step of three tenths on top of what we have is what we need to be regularly the fourth the fourth fastest team uh but he did say we're close to that goal but three tenths of a second is quite a lot even without considering other teams development programs Three tenths is kind of a hand wavy, you know. It depends what three tenths depends on what track you're running, obviously. Uh, but it's a decent yardstick. That does seem like a lot to gain at this stage of the season, and to gain consistently, given how everyone's car seems to be a little bit inconsistent, depending on what track you're running. Uh, nevertheless, this feels like their kind of last major throw of the dice for this year, and uh, you know they've got a lot riding on it. Yeah, and you know, you would you would hope that teams, all the teams, are sort of incre- incrementally improving their cars uh, as well. So the fact that they expect to be ahead of them, um, given that as well, is is impressive, especially considering where they were a year ago. You know, VJ Malia getting kicked out, uh, the team being bought, like that is extremely tumultuous for. Formula One team, but here they are in seventh place, only uh, five points behind Scuderia Toro Rosso. Um, so yeah, looking looking forward to that. Yeah, I think the team that really has to be nervous is Renault, right? Uh, because they're in that close fight with McLaren. Well, close-ish. They're, they're 18 points behind, uh, but they are only 14 ahead of Tara Rosso. So Renault's in kind of this weird position of they could make a charge at McLaren here at the end of the season, and I know Ricardo was really complimentary of the team for a strong showing in Monza where they finished fourth and fifth, I want to say, which given how things have been for that team, a putting those two cars together... Uh, you know, in the top five is a pretty huge achievement uh, for, for that team. Uh, so maybe they maybe they do have some late season form uh, left in the tank here, and that can that can help them safely escape that uh, six that sixth place spot. Yeah, especially uh, if both of their cars um, finish without exploding. So, did you see this um, this thing about there being like an air quality? warning for the Singapore GP. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, this is one of those things that definitely, again, like signs of our changing world, and our changing climate. Um, not to say like air quality warnings don't frequently, haven't frequently happened in the past and in, in warmer climates and, and in the tropics, but nevertheless, like this appears to be becoming a more regular occurrence in different parts of the world. Uh, and happened in my part of the world uh, a few months ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it sounds like this one. Well, I don't. You can go, you can go a little bit into this. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like it's it's too dangerous yet, but they're they're definitely kind of monitoring the situation. They may have to take some steps, right? Yeah, it it sounded like uh, the Singapore government at least was like, oh, it'll be fine, but we will have uh, N95 masks on hand uh, at the Grand Prix for uh, you know any any old people who were having problems. Old but people, people with breathing problems, just yeah, yeah. children, old people, people in the middle. Yeah. Uh, is this uh, is this autosport here that says yeah? Uh, nearby Southeast Asian islands have produced quote hotspot activities with smoke plumes uh, that triggered the risk of transboundary haze. So fires, I suppose. Yeah, I mean you're also in the ring of fire around there, so it's possible there've been some. Uh, like volcanic eruptions. eruptions that didn't make the news, uh, particularly much. So that's that's also always a possibility. Uh, but yeah, so that is something that everyone is monitoring and could have ramifications for the drivers as well. I mean, again, we were just doing the end of the Drive to Survive series, and one of the races they cover in that was Singapore. I want to say, and 
that appears to be maybe the most physically taxing track oh. on the calendar. Like in Drive to Survive, you see those guys getting out of the car and you don't know, like F1 drivers are in incredible shape and they look just completely wrung out at the end of practice at Singapore. So, you know, that on top of being in a race car, which is already hotter on tarmac and then if the air quality is bad, um, I could see that being a very rough race uh, to compete in. Yeah, agreed. Uh, speaking of eruptions, explosions, what uh, what have you discovered about this cryptic message from uh, Benotto to Leclerc? Yeah, this was a weird thing that had completely gone by me. Uh, Racefans.net spotted it, but uh, Matteo Benotto, uh, in his radio message to Leclerc when he won Monza, said, Ogi se perdonato. Uh, and it means that... Uh, Today you are forgiven. And hmm. apparently this all ties back to, and, and Bonato further clarified, he said, it, when people asked him, what the hell did you mean by that? He said, it means that whatever happened in the last days uh, that we discussed, that's something that will remain between our three. At least today he did a good job. And apparently that our is all three. tied, I presume that is Bonato, Leclerc, and Vettel. Because apparently okay. it all went down uh, well, all went back to the Q3 debacle at Monza, where Leclerc was expecting, where Vettel was expecting Leclerc to pull ahead of him and give him the toe around the track so he could set what he hoped to be a, col- a pole competitive lap. And Leclerc took too long to do that, and that's why Vettel didn't get his final run in at all. Uh, Leclerc, like Leclerc eventually did the overtake and started providing that toe, but he left it so late that there wasn't time to get around to uh, timing and scoring. Now, it's not only Ferrari that this got screwed up for, and this is why, like, honestly, this is one of those things. I get self-conscious about, like, always having my hobby horses about the, you know, I mean, you talk about a sport again and again, you feel like you're making the same observations, but this is one of those things that, again, makes me question just what the culture is at Ferrari. That is a kind of a weird, imperious thing to say to a young driver who just won the biggest race of your team season. Um, especially for something that I think if you if you looked back at what happened in Q3, everyone got that wrong. And to a degree... Arranging those toes is tough. That's why it's become such a farce every time in Q3. People are trying to, like, nail the timing so that the uh, leading car can sort of pull along the trailing car. Because if you get it wrong, uh, there's kind of an awkward overtake during the hot lap, and or you, you fall too bar- far behind. It's just a tough uh, sweet spot to find. And everyone got it wrong in Q3. So I just don't fully see the upshot of souring that moment like what like why do that yeah especially when uh, you're you're balancing the team and the driver dynamics as as the team principal i've actually got an email here from carolina who says hi drew denny and rob uh big fan of the podcast thanks for taking the time to make it i look forward to it after every race and i always find it extremely insightful well, I'm not new to F1, my dad and brothers being the complete gearheads of the family. In the last two years, I've really started following the sport regularly along with them, and I'm particularly fascinated by the team dynamics. That said, I want to know what you all think about the relationship between Vettel and Leclerc going forward after the Italian GP, and particularly after Q3 when Leclerc failed to give Vettel the toe. How do you think it will all play out? Do you think it could have been a calculated move by Leclerc? If so, do you think he'll come to regret souring the dynamic between himself and Vettel? Thanks for your time, guys. All the best. Carolina. I mean, there's there's a lot there, um, and a lot of it requires trying to peer inside someone's head in ways that I can't find. But after, I, I do not find this easy. But last week when we discussed Monza, to me it felt like Vettel might be a spent force in F1 right now. So to a degree... Like, if there's ever a moment to think, like, I don't really care what Sebastian Vettel makes of me as a teammate, this is probably it. Uh, because the guy has, the guy sort of tossed last season in the trash through a series of mistakes of his own making. And then this season, 
Uh, the mistakes have been just about as bad, but they've just been less significant because Ferrari's been less competitive overall. He's had a bit of bad luck, but that's been offset by the fact that he did something incredibly risky and dangerous uh, last week, which, setting aside what Ferrari expects, the, he didn't meet the standard that Formula One expects of its drivers. And then throughout the season, he seemed pretty beaten and demoralized by the lack of pace in the car. So I don't know that this isn't like Schumacher when he was like the Minotaur of Marinello back in the early 2000s. And you had to really be careful like what what, what Shumi thought of you uh, because it was clear that if you were not willing to be the appropriate uh, you know, second fiddle to him – uh, you were going to be on your way out, and Ferrari would would make you move over. Those days are done. Vettel doesn't have the record, uh, or and he doesn't have the record in the car, and he doesn't have the infrastructure around him that it, that enabled Schumacher to play that game. And I'm not even convinced Bonato has really established that he's a major force to be reckoned with in the way that like Jean Tote or Ross Braun were. So if I'm Leclerc, you're hot shit. You're probably the future of the team. And I don't think he's being a jerk about it. I don't think it was necessarily calculated. Like I said, everyone got this wrong. But this is one of those moments where you look and you, th- you know, if you think you're right, don't listen to those guys. Yeah, I'm continually interested in the team dynamic and what um, what actually goes on between teammates. And there was a really illuminating interview Um, with Alexander Albon on uh, F1's Beyond the Grid uh, podcast, which I will uh, link in the show notes. And he's talking about the move from uh, Toro Rosso to Red Bull and kind of what he's had to learn there and what he's learning from Max. And uh, he says, uh, it's not like Max is like, Alex, come over here. Let me show you how to take this corner. Uh, It's more like he'll go first in briefings and stuff like this. I'll listen to his comments. I'll listen to how he interprets the car and what he wants to go quicker. Uh, Even just listening to how he speaks to the team and how they communicate. So there are these opportunities to learn from your teammate, even if you're not buddy-buddy, right? Yeah. And I got to imagine that Leclerc is kind of feeling just like that. Like, I don't, I don't, he doesn't need to be my friend. And Vettel sounds like a guy that's pretty insular, uh, and and uh, private, so I don't know that he's really missing much here, Leclerc, uh, by by you know taking matters into his own hands and and getting his. Yeah, I think there's a bigger question of how, like, in addition to the Vettel has seemed pretty out of it. I don't think that's just psychologically he's not on his game. Like, I'm also at a point where I do wonder what's his interest level and detachment to having a great phase of his career at Ferrari. There was a point by the end uh, at McLaren where it no longer seemed like Alonzo was really that attached to the job he was doing anymore. I've gotten that feeling sometimes from Vettel uh, in, in the last in the last year. And I remember seeing an interview with him where he talks about, like, you know, his great passion is repairing his working on his uh, vintage motorcycle when when he goes home, like to it, like S- Sebastian Vettel, for all his reputation as, you know, being kind of a jerk and a competitor, like consummate competitor. It seems the the, the things I've, I've heard from him and the things I've read about him sort of imply that you get him away from the track. He turns into an old dad with hobbies. Yeah. And I think he might be at that point <laughs> where those hobbies might be looking better to him. And if you're Leclerc and you're, you know, you got that fire and it's all ahead of you. Um, I don't know if you're going to back off for him. And I don't know if you're going to back off for, uh, for Bonato. You know, this is. And, and yet I think every, every about Ferrari feels like team leaders are cosplaying Enzo. And their primary drivers are play acting at being uh, Schumacher. Speaking of Monza, do you want to follow up with uh, <laughs> with the fallout from Leclerc being shown the black and white flag? Yeah. Uh, so the black and white flag appears to be kind of divisive right now. And we talked about 
bit about this last week, I want to say, uh, where Michael Massey, the steward who, uh, the, the, sorry, uh, the race director who replaced Charlie Whiting, uh, when, when he passed, Massey said, he explained that the black and white flag has become under his direction, the equivalent of a yellow card. Uh, it's the unsportsmanship, uh, unsportsmanlike conduct flag of racing. It was not used very much, but it is at the race director's discretion as to whether it is used and how it is used. Uh, Massey has sort of taken it upon himself to use that to flash in situations where there's been something borderline or unsportsmanlike, but it falls short of being referred to the stewards. And it came up again again at Monza when Leclerc kind of forced Hamilton off at the second chicane and he got shown the flag. Didn't really matter that much because at that point he had held the position and Hamilton never mounted a successful challenge after that. But nevertheless, it was kind of a notification that, you know, hey, you're on notice. Um, And people have really intensely strong feelings about it and really different reactions to it. Uh, Keith Collantine over at race fans posted an article basically arguing that the flag injects this kind of uh, ambiguity into everything. Like his, his argument is basically that either something is illegal or it isn't. He says that what he says is the black and white flag is only introducing confusion. A move is either black or white legal or not. The signal is meaningless. And that will be demonstrated as soon as a driver performs a legal move is shown the black flag for it, then repeats it anyway. But, uh, you had seen an article from Will Buxton taking a very different tack. And I'm curious what Will's argument was there. Yeah, I, I think he, um, is a little exasperated or confused by the fact that, you know, we were angry for things like uh, Vettel in Canada uh, earning a five second penalty or, um, you know, these big, these big penalties that came down that some people didn't think, or that some people thought were just racing incidents, completely changing the outcome of the race. And so, um, this is sort of a half step measure. It's, it's like a warning. Uh, and it's a, it's a way to have, uh, our cake and eat it too. Um, so he says in this uh, article on formula one.com, which I will put a link to in the show notes, both sides here. Um, he says there's absolutely nothing wrong or nothing to stop the stewards from looking at the incident for which the race director issued the conduct flag. Uh, and determined that it was worthy of actual punishment. So I think that's a that's a key point here. The race director, Massey, is the one who issues the flag. The stewards are the ones that issued the penalties, and they don't have anything to do with each other. So the race director can issue the flag, and the stewards could issue a penalty for that action. Uh, he goes on, should the rules have been clearly and gravely breached, it would, after all, be their duty to do so. If the incident itself, however, was judged to be on the limit of acceptability or having crossed so scarcely into the red that a punishment is judged to be too harsh when compared with the infringement, then they may be satisfied that the conduct flag being shown is enough of a shot across the bow. I think this all points out... Everyone seems vaguely dissatisfied with the current status quo and Massey has introduced a half step to addressing it. But even there, remember when the, um, when the Canada thing happened, we were sitting there and I can't remember who you were quoting. I think it was one of the Dutch commentators had written a piece about how every time we ask for clear and clear, clear delineation of what rules mean, we take judgment calls out of the equation and we force people, we, we force things like what happened in Canada. We force rulings that, well, according to the letter we've now established, because everyone wanted clarity, we now have to dock uh, Vettel this time and force him to yield this position. Um, and nobody's happy with that. I was a little more ambivalent about it. Um, but I understand that there was sort of this knee jerk reaction. The, the, the let them race thing is, is so in the eye of the beholder. It is, I think it is such a meaningless, 
uh, thing to say because it's let them race until someone breaches an invisible line that then we decide is not fair racing. Um, here's what worries me. I don't think the flag is the issue. What I think is the issue is that the more drivers draw the conclusion that Leclerc ended up drawing from Austria, the more dangerous the sport gets. After Austria, when Leclerc felt that he had gotten a sharp elbow and driven off the track by their stopping and not, nobody did anything. And after, and, and, and Vettel was shown not much mercy for running off and then coming back on, uh, which was also a bit dangerous, but like wasn't necessarily sort of a screw you. I'm going through and I'm not leaving you room move. When Leclerc saw that go down, his reaction after his temper came down, he said, now I understand better what the rules are and I'm going to adjust. He, he called his shot. He said, I'm yeah. going to race differently because of that. And then we saw at Silverstone, he did. And he was extremely on the edge and extremely sharp elbowed with Verstappen again. And here we saw it again with Lewis. And Lewis had said the only thing that stopped him from causing an accident was he was thinking of the championship. He realized he just needs to keep banking his points and he's going to win the championship and it's fine. So he didn't need that spot that badly. But if the situation had been different, Lewis was implying there that if there hadn't been sort of a calming voice in his head that reminded him, oh, there's a bigger picture here. You don't need to win this fight. If he'd sort of either been fighting for a victory that was critical to him, or if he'd just been pissed enough, he would have triggered an accident. And I do think there's an element of F1 racing has always had a problem with there being kind of a chicken-like component to the psychological brinksmanship of racing. Um, And we tend to glamorize it in retrospect, like the Senate documentary treats him like triggering an intentional accident at the start at Suzuka as like kind of a natural and kind of badass moment uh, in his ongoing feud with Alain Prost. But if you take the wider view, every time a driver sort of, and this is what people were saying about, about Senna at the time, um, is that he was too on the edge. He was taking advantage of how much safer the racing was these days and sort of pushing things further and further over the limit. Um, Every time you make moves like that, you are kind of forcing the other drivers to concede like, well, one of us has to, one of us has to be the responsible party here. And I guess it's going to be me and I'm going to concede. And if that concession always leads to you finishing second, Competitors are going to decide, screw it. Actually, the thing you got to do is never see that psychological edge. And if somebody threatens a collision, you got to be willing to take it. What Paul Tracy calls, you know, giving him the chrome horn. <laughs> and when Paul Tracy has a cute catchphrase for something, you know that it's probably not a great idea in open wheel yeah. racing. <laughs> yep. Um, and so that's and, and so that's my objection to this is I, I've been harping on this for a few weeks. It's just what do we mean by fair racing? What do we mean about allowing a car's width through a corner? Do these things have literal meaning and you know that we intend to enforce? Or is it always going to be this kind of judgment call and in the heat of battle, well, really we should let them race and let it sort it out for them let it sort it out for themselves. Because then I think over time you're going to see more and more people drawing the lesson Leclerc drew, which is hell with it. You know, make me move. Yeah. <clears throat> um, speaking of the heat of battle, should we take it to Singapore? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. F1's only night race uh, takes place from t- uh, 8 to 10 p.m. local time, uh, but which is actually 2 to 4 p.m. Central European time, so it's no different for the drivers. But that means they go to sleep at 5 a.m. local time and have breakfast at 3 p.m. Uh, it also means that free practice one and free practice three take place during the day, uh, because qualifying in the race, uh, and I guess free practice two drift into the evening. So that kind of messes with your data and makes, uh, uh, make for, makes for a lot of guesswork for the nighttime, uh, qualifying and race. So that can, that can lead to some unpredictability. 
Uh, it is one of the longest races in terms of time because uh, although it's um, not the longest race, it's it's five kilometers or 3.1 miles. Uh, it's relatively slow speed. So the fastest uh, Singapore Grand Prix was one hour, 51 minutes. Uh, and um, uh, you may know that two hours is the, the limit for a Formula One race. If it exceeds that in terms of time duration, they will uh, shorten the number of laps. Um, and it's also really, really hot and humid. So it's, as you mentioned, Rob, absolutely brutal on the drivers. You might see uh, drivers wearing cool vests, which are like um, these, these uh, you know, gel things that you can throw in a freezer and then wear. Um, the drivers sweat out three kilograms or about six and a half pounds of water during the race. It's also the got the most corners on the calendar. So as a driver, you are busy all of the time. 62 gear changes and you spend apparently 25% of your time on the brake, which is more than twice as much as Monza. Uh, it's a street circuit, so it's very tight. Uh, counterclockwise, the first turn reminds me of uh, Circuit of the Americas without the incline. It's this uh, long start. Um, into this flowing back and forth section to the right. I'm sorry, to the left. Um, and then turn five is a long right-hander that leads onto the first straight, which actually has a kink in it. So if you can keep the speed up, turn seven is uh, the first of the good passing opportunities uh, in this into this heavy braking zone for a 90-degree left-hander. Um, turn 10 used to be a chicane called the Singapore Sling that had... Uh, these crazy curves, there's some um, uh, photos of cars basically becoming airborne as they're going over them. Um, but they removed the the chicane in 2013 because of the high chance of uh, damaging cars. There's still a tricky section just after that, which leads into the uh, turn 13 hairpin, which is also important because after that is the other long straight, uh, which heads into turn 14, another great passing opportunity. Then it's kind of cool. You go underneath the, the stands and into this segment called Esplanade, which is a series of tight turns that looks like if you were racing on an LED number five, you know, like on a clock radio, it's kind of uh, mm. uh, like a square wave like that. Lots of right angles. Um, and then two more slight lefts onto the start finish straight. What are your impressions of Singapore, the track, Rob? Yeah, it's... Um it's not one I like very much in terms of like when it comes up in the F1 series, for instance, is not one of my favorites. The video uh, game. Yeah. It's, um, it, you know, it is a really demanding and exhausting track. Uh, I think it's also a really stressful one because to me, at least it is kind of featureless, uh, which is funny because the night shots, it is such a distinctive race in terms of the televised presentation. You get those mm -hmm. amazing shots of that hotel with the freaking boat across the three towers and <laughs> yeah, the infinity uh, pool. that ridiculous, yeah, that ridiculous pool. Um, it's a really distinctive venue, but I think, you know, unlike Abu Dhabi, for instance, the distinction vanishes if you're in the car and it's basically you are just in this Death Star trench run of Armco barriers <laughs> and fencing. And so it ends up being a track where you really have to have memorized the layout and really you're relying on those corner markers as your sole point of reference because there's just not a ton of great features on the track. Um, and then it's also a track I associate with, um, made like not necessarily scary accidents, but ma like major ones that bring out the safety car. Uh, it's, it's a pretty tight track and there's a lot of places where, uh, so it's tricky. Like you cited turn one, right? Turn one is a bit like Coda in that. There's a little bit of room on the outside. There's a nice runoff area and it does kind of flow into two and you can kind of cut two because that runoff area continues to be the inside of the uh, corner at two and they get a really tightening turn into three. Those are a lot of invitations for people to explore the limits of track adhesion and space on the track. But then at turn three, it really tightens up fast and you know, it's like game musical chairs. If you've gotten it wrong, 
at some somewhere in there, you're going to find out like, oh, there's just no more room for a car to go. So into the wall. Uh, yeah. That can happen elsewhere, too. So it's a really tricky track uh, from that standpoint as well, because there's a lot of places for somebody to get it wrong. And then you got a car you know, wrecked on a busy street and, and they've got to bring out, they, they, they've got to bring out a safety car to clear it. Uh, so it's not a, I associate this with messy racing, but not necessarily dull racing is the funny yeah. thing. Like there's, there's some street circuit, street circuits, Monaco, I'm looking at you, uh, <laughs> that are, I think so tight and punishing. They, they really are hostile to great racing. Uh, here, this is a this is a circuit that is very that allows just enough room for both people to make interesting mistakes, but also for when people really get their blood up and have really just had enough and want to get past somebody, not naming names. One of them may no longer be in the sport. One of them still is. But if somebody really just gets pissed and is like, I'm coming through, there's a lot of places where it's maybe not a clear passing opportunity, but where there's a will, maybe there's a way. And people try it. Yeah, I uh, I'm recalled as you say that to last year, uh, Sergio Perez hitting Sergey Sorotkin after he passes him, just tries to cut him off, earns a puncture. Uh, also, same race, Perez shunted his teammate Esteban Ocon into a wall. You know, though, now that in the context of this track being hotter than the fires of hell. Mm-hmm. All of this weird stuff makes a little bit more sense to me, too. It's the end of the season. People are, like, racing for their jobs. And it's, like, a million degrees. So they're getting delirious. Yeah. Like they're out in the desert. Yeah. It's, like, it's 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 road ra- it's the Road Rage Grand Prix. Brought to you by climate change. Also in that, uh, that race, Kevin Magnuson set the record for the fastest race lap. So he still holds that at one minute... 41.905 in his Ferrari-powered Haas. Uh, the year before that was the spectacular crash uh, at the start between um, Raikkonen, Vettel, and Verstappen. Verstappen uh, basically touched his front wheels to the rear wheels of both of the Ferraris and plowed them into each other. Uh, and then Raikkonen's stricken Ferrari went a, like cut the corner and crashed into Alonso. Oh man, I will I will link that uh, in the show notes as well. It's it's amazing under the, under the lights. It's uh, quite an incident. Uh, it's also the site we've been racing here since 2008, um, and that very first race uh, it has one of the more um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for infamous moments in Formula One that frankly doesn't get talked about a lot. I think because Formula One doesn't like to bring it up very much. They put on their YouTube channel, like, top five moments from Singapore. I'm like, I think this is one of them. Um, I wasn't around uh, watching Formula One at this point, but uh, do you, Little do you know more about this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this was this was during the era when I was having trouble getting the races myself. Uh, so I didn't see it happen live. Uh, but arguably, this was a championship deciding uh, incident. Uh, because it ended up really disfavoring Felipe Massa, and he lost points in this entire deal that ended up being the margin for him losing to Hamilton at the end of the season at, I think then it was Interlagos. But, yeah, so the context for this one was uh, things were no longer going well at uh, Benetton Renault, and Alonso was getting increasingly frustrated, and I want to say the team principal there was also his agent at the time, Flavio Briatore. I think he might have already had that agent representation relationship there as well. Okay. Um, a lot of drivers are like really loyal to Flavio, um, which I always find interesting because he's always seemed like such a, a shady operator for shit like this. So things are not going well that season. Uh, Alonzo's getting pissed. And Briatore, by all accounts, is desperate for something good to happen. Uh, Nelson Piquet Jr. Um, was either – he was early in his career. I don't know if he's a rookie. Is told he's, – he's, he's Alonzo's teammate – is told that you know 
if you crash at a certain point, and we know that's going to happen, uh, we can have this entire thing timed out so that Alonzo can win this Grand Prix uh, if if we arrange this. And so PK had an accident. And I can't remember if Alonzo actually did end up winning. Um, he did, I think. Okay, yeah. But the thing was... After starting 15th on the grid. So his, the crash came out, or the crash happened, the safety car came yeah. out, which we know can totally scramble everything. Right, and... Right. And so imagine like how powerful it is if you know that a safety car is coming, right? If you knew a lap ahead of time that a safety car is about to come out. And so PK Jr. did it. He crashed his car at a place where they could not clear it without bringing out the safety car. And Alonzo goes on to win. And even at the time, people thought it looked suspicious. Uh, It was one of those things where it was just kind of a weird accident to have. And then this was what really revealed how much these drivers are kind of in the FIA panopticon. Once the FIA investigators requested all the like telemetry and onboard data from the car, they basically had him. Like they had enough evidence to judge that it was an intentional accident because apparently there just was no evidence he had lost control of the car. Everything that had happened appeared to be predictable like inputs. And I thought that was kind of chilling in some ways. Uh, it's, it's good they they sussed it out. But, uh, yeah, the, like once they got that data, it was clear what had happened. And then you sort of had the situation where Nelson Piquet, you know, it's, it's prisoner's dilemma, interrogation type stuff. Nelson Piquet Jr. realizes like he's in deep shit with his racing career on the line. His dad gets involved. Uh, he ends up like diming out uh, Flavio. I think Alonzo ends up doing the same. And the result was Flavio Briatore was basically kicked out of the sport as far as being a team principal. But I want to say they fought really hard to allow him to remain an agent. Um, And I don't know if they mandated he stop representation, uh, but I do know that uh, Alonzo and there may have been, might've been Mark Weber uh, was represented by him. Uh, But there were a couple drivers who fought really hard to, you know, Hey, <laughs> look we all make mistakes Flavio rigged one race let him stay as our agent um, yeah it was a it is infamous it is one of the weirdest things that's happened in modern F1 it basically spelled the end of the Benetton Renault team it ended uh, Briatore, but Briatore was, a, was sort of a force in the industry at the time um, and it definitely ended PK Jr's shot at being an F1 driver yeah, I've got uh, some quotes here from uh, the Wikipedia page, which were taken from a BBC article and an article from the Telegraph. Uh, Alonzo denied knowing any of uh, of no, deny, oh boy, Alonzo denied knowing of any plan to ask PK to crash, stating, "quote I cannot imagine these things, these situations. It's something that never entered my mind." Nelson PK Jr. questioned whether Alonzo knew that a crash was planned, citing that in his place. He would have questioned Renault's, quote, senseless Alonzo race strategy of starting with a low fuel load and making an early pit stop on the 12th lap. Uh, During the course of the investigation and before the WMSC hearing, Alonzo was absolved of any blame by the FIA. Uh, And on 11 September, uh, I think this is 2009, Max Mosley, the FIA president, confirmed that PK Jr. would face no action uh, after making his two statements to the FIA on in regards to this, uh, even if the case was found in favor of Renault. So he, PK, did not actually get reprimanded in any way. He just became persona non grata uh, and uh, left Formula One, went to Formula E, uh, and has not been back to Formula One since. Yeah. I remember, I want to say it was uh, Jackie Stewart at the time who remarked that it was a sign... To him, he was like, somebody asked Jackie Stewart, I want to say that, you know, well, in your day, do you think any drivers would have done it? And he was like, absolutely not. But then he followed up with something interesting. He said, of course, in my day, we were racing as grown men. We didn't come. You didn't start your F1 career at such an early date. And he's like, I don't know um, what we would have done if we'd been Nelson's age with those amount of expectations. And your boss tells you to do this, um, you know. A bunch of seasoned F1 drivers back in the day would have said, go to hell. Maybe a little tougher uh, when you are recruiting straight out of uh, sort of youth leagues. 
basically. And uh, which I always thought was an interesting point. It hasn't come up again because I think this really underlined the degree to which this kind of cheating is impossible in F1 because if it doesn't smell right, other teams are going to call you on it and then your car's data itself will betray you. Yeah. Um, driver victories here are tied between Hamilton and Vettel with four each. Um, Alonso has two, Nico Rosberg has one. Uh, and because the track is a tight street circuit and it's a slower lap, expect aerodynamics to be more important than horsepower uh, this weekend. That means we shouldn't necessarily expect Ferrari to continue to dominate uh, after their wins at Spa and Monza, uh, but we might expect some good things from Red Bull uh, as well as uh, Racing Point with their upgrade. Uh, Haas has said that they're going to try a hybrid between their old and new spec cars, but I think that's coming up uh, in the next race, not in Singapore. Um, also, there's an article in Autosport uh, saying that um, Mercedes has turned its engine back up since its introduction in Belgium and after it exploded a couple of times. Uh, Toto Wolff said to Autosport, no, we're not holding back on the engine modes anymore. So this this might be a Red Bull Mercedes race. Um, but, you know, last year, uh, Vettel was fighting Verstappen Mm-hmm. in the race and i think lost it because of strategy uh yeah. i don't know I, I didn't go back and watch it but um also mercedes was the one who was having temperature problems earlier this year i don't know if they're solved but that's a good point the mercedes i don't know the 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 works mercedes was definitely having heat problems i don't know if that problem trickled down to the customer teams uh, though they've also had engine reliability problems in the last couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, I'm also just, that is another dimension to this. If this track is really running this hot and then Mercedes to eke every last bit of performance out of an engine that is maybe its best days are past it. I could see engine reliability being a factor here um, separate from the you know paper performance of these engines. Yeah, good point. And with all the braking that's going on, overheating is a yeah. very, very yeah. big possibility. Uh, Pirelli has said um, that the tire stress, lateral forces, and asphalt grip of this track are pretty low. Um, asphalt abrasion, though, they gave a three out of five. We're taking the C3 hard tire, the C4 medium, and the C5 soft. So the softest tires that we have. Uh, Mercedes is taking two hards, three mediums. Uh, Ferrari's only taken one set of hard tires uh, and three mediums, whereas Red Bull's taken two hards, one set of the mediums, and ten soft tires. So they seem pretty confident with whatever their strategy is. Uh, and then it's kind of a mix from there, and poor Williams, uh, they're splitting their hards two to one, Russell Kubica, and then four to five medium tires and seven each of the soft. So, um... That's what we going on, got going on for tires. Weather-wise, oh boy, 30 degrees Celsius at qualifying time. That's uh, 86 uh, at qualifying time in Fahrenheit. Well, at least it's uh, a sopping heat. Yeah, 65% humidity for the day, which I think can increase, uh, well, I know can increase to 100%. Rain is not... Uh, unexpected here uh, although it looks like this weekend pretty low chance for qualifying is only three percent and for uh for race day it's only nine percent um but yeah high temps wind i don't think is much of a factor well that's not true they're right on the bay so uh yeah 10 mile an hour uh or 16 kilometers an hour uh for both race day and qualifying day yeah that's gonna be that's gonna be gross uh, let's take it through the driver standings here. Loomis Hamilton on top with 284. Valtteri Bottas behind him in second place with 221. Verstappen has 185. Leclerc, 182. Uh, Sebastian Vettel in fifth place with 169. Then we've got Gasly with 65. Sainz with 58. Ricardo and Albon are tied for eighth place with 34 points. Danny Kvyat in uh, 10th right behind him with 33. Hulkenberg and Raikkonen both have 31. Perez with 27. Norris has 25. Stroll with 19. Magnussen with 18. Grosjean's got 8. Antonio Giovinazzi with 3 points. Robert Kubica with 1. And George Russell 
uh, zero points. In constructor standings, Mercedes has 505 points. Ferrari's got 351. Red Bull, uh, 266. McLaren in fourth place currently with 83 points. Renault's got 65. Scuderia Toro Rosso, 51 points. Racing point right behind with 46. Alfa Romeo's got uh, 34 points. Gene Haas and team, 26 points in ninth place. And 10th is Williams with their Uno. Uh, in the Shift F1 Fantasy League, which you can join with the uh, code in the show notes and the link. Um, 10th place is G's Mercedes driver team, hedged by Ferrari. Ninth place, Fry the Donuts. Eighth place is blah, To the Future Part 3. Uh, seventh place is Maca F1. And we've got sixth place, Defcon 1. Fifth place, Mercedes All the Way. Fourth place, Dragon Ball GT. Number three, The Hamiltons Break the System. Number two, Steering Wheel. Hey, hey, give it to me. Move, come on. And number one, Rich Volt F1 Energy Team Paintwork Pending. It feels like there's been some movement in that field. Oh, yeah. Right. It's... uh. It's all over the place. You know what? I think um, Albon's move really switched things up because mm. you can get him for cheap on the week that they announced the move. He hadn't gone up in price right. to Red Bull dollars. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, a lot of a lot of scrambling of the field there. Uh, let's take it to the emails. You can email us at shiftofonepodcast at gmail.com. This one comes in from Travis, who says, Hi, guys. Just checking in after another awesome race. I'm not sure if you guys get all the extra things that Sky F1 do to fill out time between practice sessions. So I thought I'd bring it to your attention. Uh, You are correct. We do not get all of that uh, extra Sky F1 stuff. I've seen a fair bit of it on uh, streamable.com, the pirating site du jour, I guess. But uh, yeah, I love Ted's notebook, what I've seen of that. Um, But uh, Travis goes on to say, this time I thought it might be worth mentioning as tech guys that you are. And after hearing it being mentioned a few times on the podcast this year, Sky broadcast an hour-long Ask Crofty section in which he interviewed a guy called David Hill, who is a TV consultant for Formula One. He explained that this year they are trying to get the viewer more involved with the racing, which is why we are hearing more crowd noises when things happen on track, as they've introduced way more trackside microphones. He was also saying about the microphones that used to be in the cockpit, which is where they did used to get the engine noises being picked up from. By the way, this was a there is an old uh, forum post on Giant Bomb from like 2013 where I basically ask a whole bunch of questions. I'll see if I can find it yeah. in the show notes. It's probably pretty funny. Like I, I knew nothing about formula one. So I basically asked the giant bomb audience, Hey, here are all my questions. Please answer them for me. And one of them is where do they put the microphones? And now I know they used to be in the cockpit, but Travis says this year, they managed to develop a new microphone that can sustain massively high temperatures, which they introduced into the exhaust of the cars to try to get the viewer to hear more of the engine and gear shift tones and how they can differ between shifts up and down, and how different engines sound over runs. Anyway, sorry for the long essay here, <clears throat> but thought it might be of interest. Cheers, Travis from the UK. Thank you, Travis. Yeah, I love to read about this stuff. Uh, I remember years ago there was this piece about, it was either Fox's main football broadcast, or it might have been Sunday Night Football, but it was all about the production setup for what one of the networks does for its biggest NFL game of the week. And it's all about things like every arena is different. So where are you going to put crowd like microphones for uh, picking up crowd noise? Uh, How do you want to mix all that audio? Uh, Where are you going to set up cameras for the best shots? And there's an aesthetic component to this as well, because like if you watch games on CBS, for instance, they tend to like the announcers to be really loud and the game always is kind of muted. They try to like have on field noise, but not much crowd. And it's kind of this quiet airless feeling of an an NFL game. uh, Whereas Fox has always been very much about like getting crowd noise. And increasingly I tend to be for me, like sound is immersion, uh, especially because I've had a decent like surround setup for a while. And so to me, it sounds really weird when all you hear are basically commentators and like the center channel speaker and you're watching something really exciting, but you don't get any of that like sympathetic excitement from like, ha- like that you get with a, with a crowd. But if you have crowd mm-hmm. noise that 
does sort of create the feeling of you're seeing an awesome live sporting event. I think one thing I wish Sky would maybe do differently is it feels to me like mostly they're interested in crowd noise only insofar as it fits a narrative of Max's Dutch fans being there and excited to see him do well. Like it is this recurring beat of like Max does something on the track and like clockwork, you love Crofty being like, and he gets an amazing cheer from all these orange clad Dutch fans here to see their man take the check. It's like, surely the crowd is also reacting to other stuff. Uh, And so I wish maybe the decision were, a little more just open up what it sounds like in those stands uh, than they do. I was wondering about the engine thing, because I thought this year they did sound like, I was surprised how often this year I've been thinking, oh, that doesn't sound right. You know, you you can hear a little bit more like shifts going wrong Mm -hmm. or engines seeming off song. And I thought maybe I was just getting better at hearing that. But, well, I guess in some ways I am, because now there's a microphone. Yeah, and I have even started to be able to tell the engines apart. Oh, yeah. Which is something I never thought I would be able to do. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I always wondered why we didn't hear wind noise. Like, where is this mic? It's just engine. It's great. Uh, but yeah, thanks thanks for that, Travis. Um, and uh, if you'd like to email us as well, you can do so at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at shiftf1podcast. I am at Drew Scanlon. That's at Rob Zachney. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. Uh, let's take it around the world of racing, shall we, Rob? Let's do it. Friday, the NASCAR Xfinity Series is in uh, Richmond, Virginia, uh, at the Richmond Raceway for the Go Bowling 250. Uh, IndyCar is at Laguna Seca for their, this is their final round, I think, of this year. Uh, MotoGP is in Motorland Aragon in uh, Tru- Ooh. Ter- Teruel, Spain. All of these sound like Lord of the Rings places. Uh, MXGP, the Motocross Grand Prix, is in Hong Kong uh, at the, <laughs> the Central Harbor Front event space uh, for the MXGP of Hong Kong. Super GT is at Sportsland Sugo in... You looking at a prefecture? Uh, is Miyagi a prefecture? Hang on, I am actually down this rabbit hole of what is go bowling, <laughs> and it appears to maybe be an advocacy group for bowling. Like okay, like hey, uh, you should go bowling. Yeah, dude, like, it asked for my zip code, and it just gave me a list of bowling alleys in my area, but it wasn't like they were goal bowling locations. It was just bowling alleys near me. Uh, so this might be, like, the Dairy Farmers Association of bowling alleys <laughs> or something like that, where, um, like, they just want to spread the good word about bowling and why you should do it. And if you're curious, there's resources. So if you go to the gobowling.com website, you can click on learn and want to know how watch the videos, then get to a lane and practice from sun up till sundown, sleep, eat bowl, baby. (laughs) Does this say baby? Yes, dude, it does. (laughs) Like this, this is the most, this is the purest site you have. Like, this is such a good website. It seems so wholesome. I want to go bowling because of this. <laughs> um, but uh, it does also seem like is bowling okay? Like is th- this feels like the sort of move where like bowling alley owners are like shit. Like all our clients are dropping dead of heart attacks or like are just retiring to Florida. <laughs> so what do we do here? And uh, apparently this is this is the play. Uh, it's gobowling.com. Sponsor an NASCAR race. That's the that's the play. Uh, sports on Sugo, a motorsports facility in the town of Murata, Shibata District, Miyagi Prefecture, Japan. And we got NASCAR, the re- the regular kind, not the uh, 
not the not the bowling kind. Uh, they're also in Richmond for the Federated Auto Parts 400. By God, where are the trucks? Are the trucks done? Or are the trucks still racing? Trucks, uh, trucks may have concluded. Nope, I'm wrong. There's a race in October. Hell yeah! Don't worry. Uh, Formula One also this weekend. Maybe you've heard of it. Practice starts Friday, September 20th at, wow, we got some weird times, 4.25 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2, uh, followed by Practice 2 at 8.25 a.m. Practice 3, Saturday, September 21st at uh, 5.55 a.m. And then qualifying uh, at 8.55 a.m. That's that's very watchable qualifying. 9 a.m. qualifying on the East Coast. That's noon over here. That's great. Uh, And then the race, Rob Zachney, Sunday, September 22nd at 8.05 a.m. on ESPN2. The Deuce! I'm excited. I, uh, it's only been two weeks, but I feel like I've been, I've been missing my F1. And I like Singapore. I like looking at it. And there's always a chance of safety car, so. Cloudy with a chance of safety car. So it's tricky to pick a new bowling ball uh, that's got the right weight for you. Uh, but hopefully they do have different colors to correspond with those weights. Uh, but a lot of bowlers, the first time they end up buying or picking up a ball that is too light for them. Uh, and the other thing you really want to be careful about uh, when you're determining the right weight is making sure your fingers and your thumb go in easily. It shouldn't be tight. It should be loose. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash shiftf1. Uh, That's it for us. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Of course, it was always bowling when Pastor was driving. (laughs) 